Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're with us for the first time here or haven't been here in a while, we're working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians, this incredible letter from the Apostle Paul to the church of Corinth. This was a young church. It was a struggling church, but it was a growing church. And what we see God doing in, in the heart and the lives of these people gives hope to every church that God does miracles. He really does change people for the better. And we are going to see how he does that again today in this text. Well, today is a continuation of our study from last week on godly comfort, biblical comfort, divine comfort. And last week we looked at the first part of the chapter, verses 1 to 7, and we looked at the end of the chapter, verses 13 to 16. And today we're going to look at the middle section because it deserves a study all of its own. So for the sake of time, let's jump right into the text here, beginning in verse 6, just to give us a little running start into our text for today. 2 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 6. Paul says, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. We see this network of comfort happening in the church. Paul goes on to say, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. And here's our text for today, beginning in verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the offended one, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. These are the forever true words of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we already get the sense that this passage of text holds a wealth of wisdom and healing and strength and joy for us. Not only for us, but for all of God's people. And we pray, Lord, that this morning you would do what only you can do. And as you would not only open our eyes to truth, but you would use the truth to change us for the better. Lord, help us not to be hearers only, but to be doers of the word. Thank you for the grace that we know you will give to help cause this to happen and continue happening in each of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Well, let's study our way through these verses. We begin in verse 8 today. This is where Paul said, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. So we need to understand a little bit of background on this, right? We remember that Paul wrote both his first letter to Corinth and a second letter. The latter of which we, we don't have any record of today. It's, it's called the lost letter. It's come to be known as the painful letter, the sorrowful letter. Paul had to address very difficult and offensive issues in the church. And we learn from him in verse 8 that he had spoken so strongly that he feared he might have spoken too strongly. What parent out of love for their kids has never sensed that same thing? This is why we, we learned that Paul left Troas and headed for Macedonia. We talked briefly about that last week. A great work and opportunity was available in Troas. But Paul had such concern for the church of Corinth. He was so anxious and stressed over not knowing how they would, had responded to his letter and to even a, a, another visit in between in which he just had to leave. He had to leave. It got so bad. He was so concerned over their response that he couldn't even wait for Titus to come back to, from Corinth to give him a report. And so he headed north and west in Titus's direction, hoping to meet him along the way somewhere. Now, can you imagine in, a, in an age where there were no cell phones, how desperate Paul was to find out this news from Corinth, that he would begin a journey hoping to cross paths with Titus by word of mouth somewhere. I mean, what, the, what a cost had they passed each other and not known it, right? You don't just walk or ride your animal for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles unless you really have a purpose. This all speaks to the weight that Paul carried over this issue and this, this concern with the church of Corinth. So he went looking for Titus and he found him. And as we know, the news of the Corinthians, Corinthian believers positive response to the letter brought great comfort to Paul. We talked about this last week. Even Titus was comforted. He was relieved. He was refreshed by how they responded to the truth. There was revival happening in Corinth on a significant level. Isn't that what we want? Often, every year, May there be fresh seasons of God doing a renewed work in us, a, new, a fresh and new heightened awareness of how wonderful the gospel is, a, a, a refreshed appreciation for where God has brought us from, a refreshed burden over the ministry of reconciliation He has entrusted to us. To think, again, we looked at this a number of weeks ago, that God entrusted us with not only the mission, but with the message itself. Is there anything more valuable in this planet? God has entrusted us with the gospel. And the gospel was doing an incredible work in Corinth. And so Paul says here, in regards to this painful letter and painful visit, he says, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, he realizes, I did the right thing by the grace of God 
even though it pained me and worried me to do so. In verse 9, here's where we come to the heart of our study today. Paul says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. When I quickly read over verses like this, I think to myself, wow, there's some good truth in there. I could just tell. We could just feel it. There's a lot there. But as we study them, meditate on them, pray over them, and as the Holy Spirit begins to open our eyes, we realize that there is a Niagara Falls of wisdom in these few verses that we just read. Let's look today at seven observations of godly sorrow. If you're taking notes, seven observations of godly sorrow. I'm telling you, these are life-changing truths. Many of you I know have experienced them. I have experienced them. I have watched them played out in people's lives. These truths that we are going to look at today have the power to make and to break relationships. And we're often talking about the relationships in life that mean the most to us. These truths have the guidance needed to break bad habits that have been breaking us for decades. These truths have the power to heal and to restore and to inspire us to live the vibrant, joyful life that God so desires for His children. We know that Jesus longed for His disciples to not just be a happy people, not just to have joy, but that their joy would be in abundance, that their joy would overflow. Much to our surprise, godly sorrow is the nucleus. It's the nuclear power behind this kind of change. It's the power behind these kind of blessings. God's grace does miracles through godly sorrow. Are we well aware of this truth? Brothers and sisters in Christ, I beg you not to understand, underestimate the life-changing wisdom in these verses. Here are seven realities, seven truths, seven observations that we learn from the text about godly sorrow. Number one, godly sorrow is short-lived. Verse eight, that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. We learn that godly sorrow over a specific sin has a distinct purpose. And once the sorrow accomplishes the purpose, it moves on. This is not meant to be a long-term state of being. We've likely all wrestled with things in life, talking about bad habits, offensive behaviors, that we were sorry for and have been sorry for, and we've been sorry for for a long time, but it never seems to resolve. That is not godly sorrow, we learn from the text. Godly sorrow is short-lived by design. Number two, godly sorrow is not the same as repentance. Very closely related, but we see this in verse 9. They were sorrowful to the point of repentance. This text clearly communicates 
that we are looking at one thing that leads to another thing. It produces another thing. Sorrow, even godly sorrow, and repentance are not the same. We understand that sorrow is an emotion. It's a feeling of the heart. While repentance is a change of the mind that leads to a change of behavior, a change of direction. Sadness and change are two very different things. They're related, but they're different. You understand this. But we stress this point because we so easily mistake deep sadness for change. Point three continues this thought. Godly sorrow results in repentance. Verse nine, you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. We have to ask, what is repentance? And we've hinted at it here already. Guzik says this in his commentary on this verse. Repentance must never be thought of as something we must do before we can come back to God. Repentance describes what coming to God is. You can't turn towards God without turning from the things he is against. And then Guzik quotes Spurgeon. People seem to jump into the faith very quickly nowadays. I do not disapprove of that happy leap, but still I hope my old friend repentance is not dead. I am desperately in love with repentance. It seems to be the twin sister to faith. Then Guzik continues, sorrow in itself doesn't produce anything except bad feelings, but godly sorrow produces repentance. Since repentance is a change, understanding the Greek dictionary definition of repentance, since repentance is a change in both thinking and action, we can tell if sorrow is really godly by seeing if it produces repentance. Again, which is change. So godly sorrow cannot be measured by feelings or tears, but by what it produces. End quote. I think as parents in, in moments of correcting our children, it's easy to make the mistake of gauging the heart of the child based on how deep their sorrow is. We must learn that it is not just the depth, but the distance of sorrow that counts. One can be deeply sorrowed, but if it does not lead to lasting change, it was not godly sorrow in the first place because godly sorrow always has a certain effect and we're looking at it. Hear this. Deep sorrow without change is a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's virtually a lie. Such deep sorrow is so shallow it's nearly worthless. We'll look at worldly sorrow in a minute when we come to the text, but observation number four. Godly sorrow aligns with Scripture. We see this in verse nine. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, and nothing reveals the will of God to us like the spoken word of God. Now we could understand this godly sorrow aligning with Scripture in two ways. From Paul's perspective, this re could refer to him correcting the Corinthians in a godly, biblical, Christ-like manner. He's speaking the truth in love, etc. Now, from the Corinthians' perspective, though, this could also refer 
to their sorrow being a true godly sorrow according to the will of God. Two possible understandings of this. Here's the good news. That is, whether it's the giving or the doing of sorrow, this much we know to be true. It must be according to the will of God. That's the simple application to both parties. According to the truth and the ways and the purposes of God. There is a wrong, ungodly, unchristlike way to cause sorrow in others. And there's a right way. We also know that there is a wrong way to be sorrowful. And there is a right way, a right and a wrong. The point is, sorrow or the causing of it must be biblical. It must be godly according to what God alone demands. Number five, godly sorrow protects our resources. This is an interesting point. We see this also in verse nine. So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Now, of course, we have to notice the through us. The first part of the phrase is somewhat easy to understand, but when we pull in the through us, we see that Paul is referencing the relationship that they have with him and with his, his companions in the mission work. He's talking about the togetherness that they all together have in serving Christ and proclaiming the gospel. Paul didn't want to lose the teamwork with this church. He didn't want to lose the team spirit, the unity, and the fellowship that they had in Christ and for Christ. Remember, these were, in a church-wide sense, Paul's own spiritual children. And he says, don't lose the benefits of our unity. In a very specific, in a, in a practical sense, he's saying, don't misread my letter. Don't take my corrections and my instructions wrongly. Don't misunderstand and therefore lose the blessings that come from godly repentance. Point six, godly sorrow always pays off. We see this in verse 10. He, Paul talks about a repentance without regret. That is a mighty strong statement right there. There is a rock-solid promise weaved into the text here. Doing what's right will always be worth it. It might be painful, but it will be worth it in the end. It might be costly, but it will always pay off. In the end, one will never wish they had chosen to continue in sin. Not if it was godly sorrow, which produces a very distinct change. No regrets. That's an incredible promise to be attached to godly sorrow. How many things in life can you identify that you have zero regrets for? Those oftentimes, there are things that when we can say, I have zero regrets, we find those to indeed be the most valuable things in life to us. Point number seven. Godly sorrow leads to salvation. Verse 10, leading to salvation. And if, if we look at the, the um, uh, commentary on this and, and the Greek words that are used and whatnot, we see that this leading to is understood not to be just something that points in the direction, but something that comes along with and helps make it happen. Godly sorrow leads to salvation. What we see is this is the ultimate payoff of point number six. Every individual is hardwired to survive. It's natural. 
When danger and especially death approach, we have a natural instinctive desire to protect and to preserve life. Everyone is born with the desire to live before they even realize they have that desire. To live and to be saved, to be rescued from harm and death. What we see is that godly sorrow leads to, it produces such salvation. Now we understand very clearly from the text and, and doctrinal understanding of the New Testament all on the matter of salvation that godly sorrow not only leads to salvation, leads to salvation in the eternal sense, but in the daily sense. Remember, Paul is writing to the church. He's writing to believers and he tells them that their godly sorrow will keep saving them. Now, he is in no way teaching or endorsing a works-based eternal salvation. That would contradict the other 99% of everything he wrote. So we know that not to be true. As always, we, we form doctrine and theology around the 99%, not the odd or unclear statement occasionally made. These believers are already saved eternally from the condemnation, the judgment, the final judgment of their sin. So what is the salvation that Paul's talking about here to the church? And Paul's talking about being saved daily from the pains and grief and high price of one's own sin that happen in this lifetime. We're talking about the consequences of sin. This is the doctrinal understanding of once saved, always saved. But also the understanding that our salvation has not yet reached its final and fullest fulfillment yet. That will happen in heaven. That's why we have the guarantee, the seal, the promise, the earnest of the Holy Spirit. Is because in the heavens, the work has not been fulfilled fully yet. But in this present life, we still sin. That is our reality. That needs to be a part of our theological understanding. We do still sin. We still suffer. We still struggle. And there is a very real daily rescuing that God ministers through His daily mercy and grace to those who are quick to embrace godly sorrow. True sorrow. Sorrow that sorrows before God if you and I were wondering what it looks like to have genuine, godly sorrow for our sins, these two verses we just very briefly looked at are an amazing place to start, to begin to plumb some more of the depths of what this life-changing godly sorrow looks like. Scripture says more on the subject, of course, throughout all of the Scriptures, but in the, in the subject warrants more study than we have time to give it today. But right here is a treasure trove of truth. And I encourage you in your daily studies this week, in, in your Saul groups tonight or through the week if you meet, dive into this topic. Let's flip the text now. We find that the opposite of all these points is also true and is summed up in the next phrase in verse 10. But the sorrow of the world leads to death. Paul just masterfully set white and black side by side to see, help us to see the stunning contrast 
of natural worldly sorrow and divine, miraculous, biblical, godly sorrow. So let's consider worldly sorrow for a moment. Here are eight observations, eight truths, eight realities of worldly sorrow. Now, the first one isn't an opposite of the seven that we just studied. This is just simply an observation worth making from the text. Number one, worldly sorrow is a genuine form of sorrow. That's why Paul has brought these side by side. They both exist. And this is why it's so easy for us to mistake it for godly sorrow. They look similar. However, worldly sorrow is unbiblical. It's self-derived. It's man-centered, etc. It's humanistic. Here's what's interesting about self-sorrow, worldly sorrow. It formulates itself based on itself, not taking into account what Paul called the will of God. In the simplest sense, worldly sorrow is any sorrow that is void of God. His truth is not present. His will is not present. His character, His commands are not present. His desires are not weighing in. Worldly sorrow forms its opinion apart from all things divine. Here's the scary reality of worldly sorrow. It's natural. It's what the flesh automatically tends to do in all of us. It's what the curse of sin naturally produces. And Paul warned the church, careful lest this wrong kind of sorrow produce something in you that you do not want. Point number two, and we'll, we'll just walk straight through the rest of these contrasts. These are the opposites of the seven points that we just looked at. Number two, worldly sorrow hangs over you for a long time. Years, decades. Number three, it hardens the heart. Contrary to repentance, contrary to genuine change, worldly sorrow makes change more and more unlikely the longer it sits. It's like concrete hardening. It makes change more and more difficult to achieve. It gets more and more set in its ways. Number four, worldly sorrow contradicts Scripture. It spoils your resources. It never pays off. It always leads to regret. And ultimately, number eight, it kills you. Many commentaries point out, going back to Jesus being arrested prior to the crucifixion and around the time of his crucifixion, they point out that two men sorrowed. Peter, who denied Christ three times, sorrowed. But his sorrow was godly and it led him to repentance. Who was the other man that sorrowed? Judas. Judas. And his worldly sorrow killed him. He committed suicide. Both men sorrowed deeply. But what incredibly different results. Repentance was the unavoidable fork in the road. And godly sorrow determined the route each took. Application question. Which do you and I prefer? Godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? And of course, the more ap accurate question would be, which have we already chosen? Which are we daily choosing? We likely all prefer God's way. But are we choosing it? 
are we living it? As they rightly say, it's the walk that talks louder than the talk talks. And Paul commended the Corinthian believers for not only desiring the right thing, but for doing the right thing. They put themselves, by the grace of God, on the right path. What a lesson in genuine spiritual growth for all of us. Now, we've just looked at our first major subject, and that is godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Let's now look at the second major subject Paul gives, and that is earnestness. Verse 11, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Seal this truth in your mind. We often hear that godly sorrow leads to repentance, but we often don't hear the second part, and that is that godly sorrow also produces earnestness. This is the same word for carefulness, for diligence. The dictionary defines earnest this way, Bible dictionary. Earnestness refers to giving all diligence, to interest oneself most earnestly. This is not a casual concern that Paul is referring to here. It's something that, had bear, that bore magnificent weight in the minds of the Corinthian believers. We're talking about intense devotion, a heightened seriousness, a fervency with the things of God. Godly sorrow produces this in believers. It's something we should expect and demand of ourselves and of one another. It's the right thing. Can I say that again? Godly sorrow produces earnestness. It's something we should expect and demand in ourselves and of one another. It's the sign of good Christian health. Jesus didn't beat around the bush on this. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. That's earnestness. Devotion, all in. We observe, by contrast, that worldly sorrow, on the other hand, produces laziness with faith, neglect of faith, carelessness with the faith, indifference. Do we recognize that casual Christianity is one of the great cancers of the church? Comfortable Christianity, flippant faith, frivolous faith, Cheap Christianity. That is not what we want. And that is not what godly sorrow produces. Paul in verse 11 teaches us that earnestness is demonstrated in seven ways. If you're taking notes and if you like lists, we got lists for you today. Paul put them right here in the text. And of course, this is not an exclusive list. It's just a list. It's the list that applied to the situation in Corinth, and there is much for us to learn from it. We see in verse 11, just in verse 11 alone, that the reality of earnestness is just demonstrated in at least these seven ways. Number one, personal vindication. 
To vindicate means to prove one's innocence. To refute and disprove the accusations. To exonerate oneself. In the case of the Corinthians, they were guilty, but soon proved themselves to now be innocent. They stopped sinning. They became innocent. That's exactly what Paul was asking for. Number two, indignation. It's a big word. These believers in Corinth not only stopped sinning, they hated the sin they were doing. Woe to the individual who ceases to sin but continues to look fondly upon it. Who looks back and misses it. Do we think of anyone in the Old Testament who looked back fondly upon that which God condemned? Lot's wife made that mistake. And what happened? Like this text says, it killed her. It cost her her life. Without indignation of the sins we committed, we will not have lasting change and earnestness. Number three, Paul commends them their earnestness for its fear. There was a healthy fear of the ramifications and consequences of sin. This goes hand in hand with the indignation point. Paul commended them for running from it, for fearing it. We want to look back at our sin and have it scare us because we know what the sin does to a person and those they love. I admire the fear a man or woman who has overcome alcoholism or porn or gambling, etc. has. That's a healthy fear. You will often hear them say, sorry, I can't do that. I just can't go there. That's because they fear sin like they should. They don't fear the alcohol. They fear the sin. Remember, healthy fear is not a weakness. It's a strength. It's an element of earnestness. It's a sign that godly sorrow took place and is taking place. Believers should be so devoted to the life and death nature of the gospel ministry that they fear dabbling with sin. They fear playing with and even drawing near to temptation. The next he gives, number four, is longing. The King James Version describes this as vehement desire. The desire is like a red-hot furnace. This is more than wishful thinking or a shallow preference to change and do what's right. Indignation and fear drive a person to passionate advocacy, devoted service, great service, a longing. We can't truly hate something without loving its opposite. You can't hate Satan without loving God. You can't love God without hating Satan. You can't run from sin without running to what is right. These are such important realities to not only understand, but to measure ourselves by. Oh, that we will long for those things that are good and righteous, as Paul said, the things that are according to the will of God. Number five, their earnestness was demonstrated by zeal. 
Paul's continuing this chain of thought here. We could see how they overlap. I love looking at the synonyms for zeal. Gusto. Passion. I love that. Does gusto describe your and my faith, our Christianity, the way we engage with our families in this world under the banner and the name of Christian, follower of Christ? Gusto. Thayer's Bible Dictionary gives some remarkable depth to this word. He describes it this way. Excitement of mind, ardor, fervor of spirit. And then there's two sub-points to this. Number one is zeal. Ardor in embracing, pursuing, defending anything. Zeal in behalf of, for a person or thing. It's the fierceness of indignation punitive zeal. The second sub-point of this is an envious and contentious rivalry, a jealousy. That definition fit the Corinthians quite well. They picked their side and made it obvious, whereas they were once opposed to falsely accusing, challenging Paul in the gospel message, they drew the line and they changed sides. And they not only changed sides, here's the intention of the definition, they began fighting for that side. This is number six, avenging of wrong. Pick a side and go to battle. It's one thing to be on the team, it's another to be on the field. The Corinthians picked up their sword, their shield spiritually, and they engaged in the work of the ministry. We have to remember what city we're talking about. This was Corinth. This is the Los Angeles or Seattle of that isthmus. A major melting pot. It was not popular. It was costly to choose Paul's side. Remember, Paul, on behalf of the gospel, was often run out of town wherever he ministered. The Corinthians avenged that which was wrong. They took up the cause. Point number seven, the last thing Paul mentions in this list, innocence. This is like a, the bookend to the beginning of the list, which was personal vindication. Innocent from start to finish. Innocent in every area. Here's again what is so inspiring. Think about what's taking place here. Here's what is so inspiring about this point of incident, in, innocence. The church at Corinth was not always innocent. This isn't a church that has always done it right. This isn't the church that made no mistakes. They were not always innocent. They were actually guilty, highly guilty, when Paul sent the letter and paid the visit and sent another letter. They were not always zealous and engaged, but now they were. Innocent, forgiven, clean, above reproach, fired up in the life-changing work of the Lord. God changed them. This is the ministry of comfort that we looked at recently. And isn't that the way the gospel works? It's such a beautiful testimony. The immature church, the struggling church, the church that caused more pain and sorrow to Paul than any other church we know of has been changed.
So much more could be said on each of these points. But I can't get those donuts out of my mind. Verse 12. Here's the major third subject that Paul teaches. First was godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Second is the earnestness that follows. And third here in verse 12 is the importance of the big picture. Our personal walk with God. Let me give you the big picture lesson and then we'll unpack it a little in the text. The big picture lesson is this. It's your honesty about your faith before God that matters most. It is my honesty about my faith before God that matters most. Wait, and see how, uh, wait do you see how Paul makes his point here. Verse 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. This is Paul saying, I don't care what happened to the offender. I don't care what happens to the offended. I care about you proving and knowing your earnestness about your faith before God. Now, when I first read that, my thought was, it wasn't for the offender. It wasn't for the offended. We've just read six chapters that dealt quite a bit with the offender and the offended. And Paul's thoughts on these matters and how change should take place. The Bible Knowledge Commentary by Wolverd and Zuck, which I just received from uh, Galen Hansen's dear wife, this commentary points out that Paul is using a common writing technique called, and you've probably never heard of this, exaggeration. <laughs> I like to call this writing technique intentional and obvious exaggeration. We see this used in places like Luke chapter 16, verse 26, where Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If the reader doesn't understand the technique of intentional and obvious exaggeration that Jesus used here to drive home the supreme requirement to love and follow God above all else, then they will come to all sorts of terrible conclusions on a verse like that. I mean, really, hate your wife? Hate your children? That would contradict the 99% of what the rest of the Scripture says. When it comes to biblical understanding and interpretation, the law of no contradiction helps us to quickly recognize that Jesus was surely not endorsing, let alone commanding, hatred of family. And an understanding of historical Jewish writing technique also helps us to interpret Scripture properly. And that's not just a historical Jewish technique. Every language uses this. Here's a modern-day example. It's New Year's Eve. You're 17 years old at the youth group party, and you've just downed your eighth slice of pepperoni pizza, and you drop your head on the table and say, I never want to see a slice of pizza again. Is that even remotely true for any 17-year-old? No. Do we think they actually despise pizza forever? Does that thought even come to our mind? No, we don't even begin to understand it that way because we know they have just made use of intentional and obvious exaggeration. Back to verse 12. It's not that Paul didn't write at all to address the offender or the offended. He clearly did. 
He said so. We studied the text. The exaggeration used here is to point out that such was not his primary purpose for writing, for writing the painful letter. Whereas the readers would have been very likely to assume that that was his main purpose. His main purpose was to right the wrongs in the church. Paul points out, no. There is something far greater that I am after. And that was to prove the level and the sincerity of their faith and earnestness in the gospel. He wanted them to prove to themselves their devotion to God. He wanted them to be honest with themselves. We can hear Paul saying, stop lying to yourself about the quality of your Christian life. Speak the truth on the most important matter and speak it to yourself first in the sight of God. This is a huge lesson that Paul is teaching us. Think of this in the parenting context of the home. The two little children. The goal is not to prove who hit who. The goal is not to prove whether the reason for pushing the other sibling off the top bunk was valid and justified. Biblical correction and training goes far beyond that. We learn from the heart of the text today that the goal of any situation isn't just to right the wrong. It's to help all parties involved to see whether they are loving God and one another as they should, as God commands. Yes, the details have to be sorted out, but it is not about the details. It's about the big picture of loving God, of living rightly in His sight. This is a behemoth of a principle for parenting, not to mention Christian counseling for all ages, the counsel we give ourselves. It's not about the situation. It's about the sanctification. Those are two very, very different objectives. Is the goal to mend the marriage or to see both husband and wife fall in love with God all over again? Marriage, parenting, interpersonal conflict, financial disputes, you name it. Don't lose sight of the big picture for believers. Paul wanted these believers to prove their faith, to be confirmed and assured in it, to verify and validate it. And here's the reality. What you and I think doesn't matter. What you think of me doesn't matter. What I think of you doesn't matter. What the church thinks of you and what you think of the church doesn't matter. Now, of course, I'm exaggerating to make a point here. It's what I before God and His Word know to be true of the earnestness of my faith that matters. It's what you, as an individual, in the sight of God and His Word, know to be true of the earnestness of your faith that counts. Why is this? Because you can't do my faith. I can't do your faith. Us parents can't do the faith of our children. This is a personal responsibility issue. And the Apostle Paul, a master counselor under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, drives home this fundamental truth and reality. If life change is going to happen, 
one must take responsibility before God according to the word. Your faith is up to you. Mine is up to me. Both to know it and to do it in the sight of God. Again, we find a striking, defining line between godly earnestness and worldly earnestness. Worldly earnestness will tell you this. What you sincerely think of yourself is all that matters. Biblical earnestness will tell you this. What you think of yourself doesn't mean daily squat unless it acknowledges and aligns itself with what God sees and requires and speaks in His Word. If our view of ourselves aligns itself with the Word of Truth, then what we think of ourselves matters a great deal. Because this is a personal faith, a personal responsibility, a personal choice. Again, biblical counseling, biblical philosophy at its finest right here in the text. And the believers in Corinth hit a home run on these truths. This is a hard pitch to hit. This is something that all struggles wrestle with and will for as long as we exist. But there is a home run to be hit. And it is on these points here. The Corinthian church nailed it. And Paul said in verse 13, for this reason, we have been comforted. Continue our theme from last week on contagious comfort. Here's one of the beautiful truth pillars that we see at play in these verses today. Godly sorrow in me comforts others. Godly sorrow in you comforts others. And repentance is a part of the ministry of comfort. And it not only comforts the repentant one, it comforts everyone around them. But not only is repentance a part of the ministry, earnestness, devotion, zeal, gusto, all these things that Paul has so clearly laid out to help us give good definition to what it means to be a Christian who is on fire. All of these things contribute to the ministry of comfort, the ministry of joy, the ministry of inspiration and strengthening and building each other up. Again, this not only happens to the individual, it happens to everyone around them. Why is this? Because we're in this together. We are so in this together. When one is comforted and energized by the fruit of godly sorrow, we are all blessed. This is the ripple effect of godly sorrow. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, one would not naturally expect to find such joy and victory and healing and hope and inspiration in something so peculiar as godly sorrow. And yet, we, in light of this Thanksgiving holiday, as believers with a with a, a simple understanding of your word, recognize that everything we have to give thanks for has been touched by a godly sorrow. 
God loving the world so much that he would send his own son to die for them that if they would but believe, they would never suffer eternal judgment. Lord, help us to believe. Help us to God have such a godly sorrow that repentance, the belief that leads to change, would happen in our hearts. And that healing and victory would begin to grow more and more in us, not only for our sakes, but for the sake of all those around us. When one sorrows, we all sorrow. When one is comforted, we are all comforted. Thank you for the wonder of such unassuming and yet spectacular truth. God, help us to know how to kneel before the cross. How to look up and see the sacrifice that was made. The sacrifice that forgives and promises blessing. The sacrifice that brought God down to earth, whose Holy Spirit now dwells within us and does the things that we could never do for ourselves. Thank you, Lord for your goodness, for your truth, that we don't have to rely upon ourselves, our own thinking, our own figuring out of this world. Lord, instead, we run to you. If there's anyone here seeking you, Lord, I pray that this day they would find you. Lord, those who know you, may they find renewed vision and strength from you and your word. We praise you for who you are, for what you have done, and for what you promised to do. It is in you that we find great confidence. It is because of that that we call you our God. And we are your children. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.